trigger warning, trigger warning. This is a reminder, you have got a trigger. <laughs> Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful adult conversation about human issues. But I'm not a professional, and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, <laughs> even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks. So this is like literally when you just go deep enough into your own fantasy about yes. something. Yeah, 100%. And then you have a physical reaction yeah. to your fantasy. Hey, Matt LeBlanc here, talking to my good friend, Ben. It's Christmas Day in the evening. We're hanging out in his living room with some friends. We're a little drunk when suddenly we find ourselves diving deep into his necessary delusion and the involuntary physical response he can sometimes have when he lets his mind wander into the recesses of his imagination. Here's Ben. So if we're looking back really historically into middle school and high school, why wasn't I a cool popular kid? It's like, cause I fucking had a full on, almost like a Tourette's like response to things that were exciting. Either real life happening on the screen, TV or whatever, or in my brain, the action was involuntary and I would take my hands and they would come up in front of my chest, right underneath my chin, and you would see like my fingers like popping and they're like kind of like doing these like weird motions. There would be twitching in my face. It would all go together. It, it would almost look like I was having a fit. It wasn't frowny faces or smiles or anything like that. It was just kind of like my mouth was going. And I've been doing that since I was two and a half years old. The ticks usually happen when he imagines the minutia that goes into making his greatest fantasies come true or action sequences. If you've ever seen like a bullet time effect or slow-mo explosions, in my mind, I always can kind of do that kind of level of detail with adventure stuff. Have you ever seen any of the Iron Man movies? Yeah. The fantasy can be the Iron Man suit going on, right? Like that slow motion of like, as like the pieces like fit together like a puzzle. I mean, and then Iron Man goes and then he blasts off and I'm like, man, that was a great fantasy. <laughs> like, I don't even. Your necessary delusion. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I am your host, Matt LeBlanc, and I've decided if I ever actually met the other Matt LeBlanc from Friends in real life, I wouldn't know what to say to him. I mean, I'm certain that I would overshare and probably monopolize the conversation and embarrass myself, and it's probably better that we just continue on our own separate paths. No offense, Matt. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. So let's get back to Ben's living room. 
Ben and his wife Colleen live in the Valley of Los Angeles. They are a core part of my found family in LA and fun fact, provided a much needed refuge for me post-divorce. It is the eve of Christmas, not Christmas Eve, but like Christmas day in the evening. My wife Pow and I are hanging out with Ben and Colleen and some other friends having a drink. And if you can't tell, I'm pretty much talking about necessary delusions all the time, whether I'm recording or not. I can't help it. They are just the lens through which I see the world. And so as Ben poured us shots of sweet peanut butter whiskey, we began talking about the lens through which he sees the world. That lens is science. I mean, science as a lens to understand things is really great for like the natural world. Look at an ant farm or a poison dart frog or a bird of prey and be like, all of these things are through the process of evolution. They happen because it's adding to the fitness of the organism. And the thing that I was most lacking off in terms of my understanding was like people. Now he's talking about his own evolution and learning to understand people because it's always a journey, right? I feel like I've had to learn the boundary lesson for jokes over and over again. I would think that everything was fine. Everything was fine. We're talking about really intimate stuff. Here's a joke about it. That was off limits. Whoops-a-doodles. <laughs> oh boy. Now you're speaking my language. Ben and I are both loud. We're big personalities. I was always loud. That is definitely the case. For literally years, I was so focused on going for the joke, trying to get the laugh, unconsciously trying to prove my magic to the world, to myself, that I wasn't paying attention to the feelings of the people around me. I was only paying attention to the incredibly biased narrative that I was writing about myself. Anyway, let's start at the beginning, at the origin of Ben's necessary delusion, when he was 11 years old, living in New Jersey. At the school, there was a tire playground. It was made out of tires. In my mind, it was huge. Stories tall. You could climb to the top of this pyramid where you get to the top and you're jumping on it and you're like, I want to fall off and die. But it was awesome. And I always would be like, oh, it's all about getting to the top of that pyramid. I mean, it was always like that. It was like, <laughs> they're playing football. Okay, so you got to be better, good at football or you're playing soccer. You got to be good at soccer. You got to be, and it was, I always felt that if you're the best at outdoor time, people just like you, right? Like that was always my, I mean, I always thought that I was awesome at outdoor time. But I was, yeah, I don't know, not great. Somewhere in the middle. Ben's tall, the oldest of four. His parents are British. He's a runner these days, but as he mentioned in the opening, throughout school, he was never particularly cool or popular. He was never the best at outdoor time. He was excitable and maybe a little nerdy. I also had a fucking British accent until I was like 13 years old. So I would say things weird and he had an uncontrollable twitch when he got excited and imagined his greatest fantasies coming true. And as I said, action sequences. It was described as like a self-satisfying, self-gratifying twitch. What is the earliest instance of this that you can remember? What were you fantasizing about? That would be kind of like, when was the first time that you remember having a Coca-Cola, right? I mean, I, I couldn't tell you, it happens all the time, right? It started, early enough that my parents are asking about it to a neurologist before I was three and went, it's still forever, I'm almost 40, right? And the only thing that has changed is the amount of like control that I'm able to have on it. My wife will tell you that sitting next to me in an exciting movie, it's a fucking twitch fest next to her. 
if you're talking about like the car flipping, what I can see in my mind's eye is always like, it's slow, the fireball's happening behind it, the person is jumping out, and it's always the last minute superhero-y style. Those kind of levels of detail. Through elementary school, through middle school, through high school, it was pretty dominating. Like it would be an emotionally charged force that would happen. And it would never happen if I was doing something, right? So like you're doing schoolwork, you're doing, you know, experimenting chemistry, that's fine. Give my brain a second to do whatever it wanted. And it was straight into this thing of like, I'm doing this thing, it's crazy. What about explosions? You could visibly see that it was happening in my brain because there was like a, a visible tell to it. But as we dug deeper behind the Twitch, surprise, we find the ego. 100% it's ego stuff. Because I wanted to be those superheroes, right? I wanted to have like those superpowers and be a superhero. There's definitely an ego part to it there. Never underestimate the power of the ego because it is always there, waiting and watching and looking for the right moment to pounce. One time in fifth grade, it was, it was science class, right? And one of the teachers asked a question about black holes. And they were like, well, how do we know black holes exist? Because we can't see them. And I said something along the lines of, oh, well, black holes, they're so big and massive that stars rotate around them as opposed to planets rotating around stars. And this woman who, I mean, maybe was 40, she stopped and there was like silence. And I remember very clearly, she looked at me and she goes, that's exactly right, Ben. And it was in that moment in fifth grade that one of the greatest delusions of his life smacked him squarely in the face. And then that was it. I was like, well, I'm obviously a scientist at that point. That defined me for the rest of my life that I was a scientist. It really did. It, it yeah. probably made a huge impact, huh? A huge, huge. That was fifth grade. And it made such a big impact because at that point I was like, well, I know so much about stars in space. <laughs> Delusion. He made a lucky guess. He was 11. But that didn't matter. Those were just the facts. What we're talking about is the delusion, the story that filled in the space between the facts. And this was a win that felt very personal to Ben. It was the realization of a new kind of pyramid to climb that wasn't made of tires. And his very old teacher, this adult, had just validated him as a source of scientific information in front of everyone. So as the teacher moved back to the chalkboard and continued the lesson on black holes, Ben's hands moved to his chest, his fingers fluttered below his chin, and his mouth hung open strangely. He wasn't listening anymore. He wasn't even in the room. He was busy riding his fantasy as it burst off into the future of being a real-life scientist. I should definitely do stars and space science. I should be an astrophysicist. Like, that's what I should do. I, I don't know if I have more of a deeper meaning than it was like a thing that clicked. In that moment, I knew from probably not that far off from that point onwards, but I knew I was going to get a PhD. I don't know why, I didn't know how, but I knew at some point you'd be like, oh, well, it's doctor. That was something that I knew was going to happen from that point onwards, basically. And, and I don't know if it was always there and it was just like somebody gave it a word or if it was something where if she had been like, no, that's wrong, but you're really good at English. I'd be like trying to write a novel or something like that. But it, it always felt to me like it was just putting the, the words to reality of, oh, I was gonna be a scientist, so I should just be a scientist. And that's always kind of how it felt from that point forward.
When I was in fifth grade, my friend Steve started playing the viola. He had just gotten it, actually, and he was showing a group of us as we were hanging out during a free period. I don't know, we'll see. My mom wants me to be an orchestra, he told us. We all examined the delicate wooden rental, probably a bit surprised that we were allowed to play with this thing unsupervised. You know violas. It's like a violin, but a little bigger. It looked very fancy and old and fragile. I had never even heard of one before. Steve put the thing up to his chin and dragged the bow across the strings a few times. Not great. The sounds it made did not match the elegant look of the instrument at all. Can I try? I asked. Yeah, right. I probably just grabbed it. I was a pretty aggressive attention hog at this point. And for the next several decades. I put the viola up to my chin and sliced across the strings with the bow. A deep, full, bassy sound emerged from its wooden body. Steve was impressed. I was impressed. Everyone was impressed. Wow. It's never done that for me before, he said. Oh, yeah, I said. How about this? I continued to drag the bow across different strings haphazardly. It wasn't music exactly, but the sound it made was full. And then this girl Blair said something that would ignite an instant delusion inside of me. She said, yeah, you're really good at that. And that was all I needed. Without any more practice or investigation, I went right home and told my mom, Mom, I need to join the orchestra. I might be a prodigy. I don't think I actually said that I might be a prodigy, but that was definitely the thought and feeling behind this mission. And so that's what we did. My parents had sort of this rule for themselves as we were growing up. Feed the passion. Definitely one of the cornerstones that I was raised with and a very convenient rule to support half-baked ideas like renting this viola. So we went to an instrument rental shop in the neighborhood and I saw cracks appearing in my delusion right away because when they pulled out the case for my viola, it was different than the instrument cases I saw everyone else carrying to school. See, Steve's case was black and it had kind of sharp edges. It looked cool. I wanted to carry that case into school. I mean, that's how everyone's instrument cases looked. But the case that they pulled out for me was brown. It was light brown, and it had rounded edges. I should have refused it right there, in all of my white privilege, and just said, I don't want to carry this on the bus every day. But then I remembered, what if I'm a prodigy? I owed it to myself to give this a try. I mean, I owed it to my parents, my school, my little brother Buck. I owed it to music. But alas, of course, I was not a prodigy. My memories surrounding the viola are pretty limited after that. I remember the crushing self-consciousness I felt carrying it onto the bus for the first time. I think someone actually asked me why I hadn't gotten a black case, which, of course, made the brown case look even uglier to me. I remember sitting next to Steve in orchestra class, stumbling through Mary Had a Little Lamb. It made my fingers hurt. And I remember practicing at home. Once. (laughs) One time. Because my mom made me. And in retrospect, it is all so transparent. I practiced for 15 minutes in front of the mirror. I can only assume because I was more concerned with what I looked like playing the viola than what I sounded like. The music I was creating didn't sound like music, but I could make it look pretty convincing. I also played in the first concert of the year that we had, except I already kind of knew I was going to quit the viola at that point, so I didn't really play. I hadn't practiced enough, and I certainly didn't want it to sound like Steve's viola. He was actually trying to play, and it sounded like it. Not for me. This was going to be my farewell performance. 
So as the concert began, I held the viola pinned under my chin with the bow floating just over the strings, and as the full bassy groans of everyone else's instruments swelled in the air around me, I dramatically mimed the swan song of my viola prodigy delusion. How do you think the scientist delusion helped shape your path? I mean, at that point, it was ingrained. Like, it was beyond the delusion. It was a persona. I was a scientist, right? Like, I took science classes very seriously. I took math classes very seriously. I was like, this is what I am. Of course, this is what I am. I, I was always just comparing myself to my, my classmates. I always thought my classmates were brilliant. I don't know how much of it was like a reinforcing narrative of, I thought I was brilliant, so therefore they were also brilliant. But I, I didn't have to think about other scientists because I was constantly competing against like my, my co you know, colleagues, my friends. They're all my friends. <laughs> right. right. But maybe he thought of them a little bit like colleagues because it made the whole mission feel more important, more real. They weren't just enthusiastic preteens fulfilling the school district's fifth and sixth grade science requirements. I mean, they were. But that was just the reality. The delusion, the part that was really important, was that they were young scientists, learning and thriving and competing and pushing each other to expand their minds and fulfill their destinies. I feel like a lot of that scientist stuff that I was learning in high school was a lot of Here's a bunch of words that you have to learn, what they mean, right? Right. Biology, physics. We had earth sciences very early in my school district. So it was like, here's a bunch of rocks and like what that means with the rocks. And so I've always felt like science is figured out. You just have to learn what the science is. And because science is always concrete, delusion, then what you are gaining is a proven concrete understanding of the world around you. Here's what you do. You take thing A and you mix it with thing B and you always get things C. And for years, that's how I thought science was, that you just followed these recipes. But as he studied and became an expert at these scientific recipes, he was missing some of the basics in connecting with other people. I know I definitely was mean with my close friends, but in the way that, I mean, and this is the unhealthy part of where my family is, is we show our love and affection by, by needling, right? Like you only needle the people you really like. I know one friend in particular where I made her cry based off of kind of callous throwaway jokes at least four or five times over the course of three years to the point where it would either happen instantaneously and it would be awful or I'd say it and she was such a good person that she would like let it happen and then I would get a call the next day a week later and being like this really hurt me this is what you did can you remember one of them no I mean, I'm sure she could. I'm sure she has an active mental list of what I've said that made her cry in the past. Don't go judging Ben too harshly, Earth Monster. We all suffer from the same sickness, the selfishness of the human condition. I have this joke all the time with my partner now that I'm secretly a robot that just has learned how humans work. And I think that was probably very true in, in high school where I spent a lot of time being like, I don't understand why I'm not popular. I don't understand why I'm not the cool kid. Because like most of us, he couldn't see himself. He didn't see himself as the aggressive nerd with the excited twitch and fading British accent in suburban New Jersey. 
I'm guessing mostly. Obviously, I wasn't there. I've always felt like I've I've always understand people. People are like boop boop boop. He thought he had it all figured out, delusion, but it can be very hard to see yourself. And for me, it really took years before I was able to look back and get a clear vision of the role that I had played in my own life. I always thought of myself as like the lover. Like, oh, I, I don't subscribe to violence, right? To <laughs> Right. To, to think of myself as a, as a bully, but it definitely could have happened. A lover by default. He didn't want to fight, but he had a cutting sense of humor. I can relate. There was a kid in school who was relentless, like typical classical bully, where he would see me and would just like verbal attack constantly. And I don't think it was ever about the twitch. He would find anything. And I think it's interesting that like maybe people just didn't have the language to describe what the twitch was. But this guy was relentless. It was like, it was in the locker room changing for gym. It was in gym. It was anytime you saw me in the hallway. And I hated this guy. What would he say to you? One of the worst times in a really public setting. Again, it was in gym class. I was a pretty gangly kid. Still a pretty gangly man, but as a kid, very gangly. Just bones and skin, really. And he got into this thing. Oh, you look like you're a monkey. Right. Look how long Ben's arms are. It's so long. He looks like a monkey. And he was sitting there and would put his tongue up into his upper lip to make it look like a monkey's face. And he was like, oh, Ben, oh, you look like a monkey. Oh, you look like. And I just remember it being like traumatic <laughs> and being like, I don't look like a monkey. If I wasn't actually crying, I was very noticeably on the verge of tears. Not the most original put down, but upsetting to Ben. Then again. Who's to say what the other side of the story was? I would hate to find out that people disliked me because I was unaware of how I treated them. I'm afraid that if you ask somebody from my high school, that it would be like that episode of 30 Rock where Liz Lemon thinks she's being picked on the whole time and she finds out that everybody hated her because she was the mean one. I'm not a bully. I just like to joke around and I'm funnier than you and louder and I don't know when to quit. Oh, you feel like a punching bag? I am so sorry. I'm not going to be ready to take that in for like another five years or so. I felt like high school and college was a lot of like learning about how people worked a little bit. And science for me was like, uh, oh, I get that. I get why people do that now. And it took a little while to figure all that out. Just keeping us on theme, science being the lens through which Ben sees the world, taught him that human behavior is something that can be observed and objectively understood to a certain extent. I feel like I do a really good job of pretending to be a person at this point in time. In my experience, I would describe Ben as an intuitive, empathetic, emotional person. But then, maybe he's just a very perceptive robot. I feel like my intuition and empathy and kind of observing other people comes from the fact that I think that those things are important. He makes the choice to try and be more empathetic. He changes his behavior even if his thoughts stay the same. I still have those thoughts and then I just have enough awareness now to be like, don't say it. Popping off at the mouth is so easy and satisfying. Most of the time it's completely self-involved, but holding your tongue, choosing your words, that takes restraint. And what Ben's talking about is growth. I think other people who I know who think of themselves as empathetic or intuitive, they're like, well, it's just something that I am. And they feel very enlightened by it, but also like that it is just something that is part of their nature. And for Ben, his empathy is something that he feels has taken a lot of conscious learning. 
which makes him feel different and sometimes robotic. But at the same time, I feel like it's helped a lot because there have been instances where I'm like, oh, we need to call that person tomorrow. And Colin goes, I don't know why. And I go, oh, because in the last time we hung out with them, they mentioned this thing and, and that was really important and that happened yesterday, so we should call them tomorrow so that they know that we're thinking about them. She goes, oh, we'll just see them next week. I'm like, I think it's more important than that. It is more important than that. And, and here's the thing, I don't think high school Ben could have understood anything like that. I think it's only 25 years later with a lot of more experience and, and time and runway that I have any comprehension of that empathetic factor of like what people are looking for. But you feel like you got there through almost like a scientific process. Yes. You found your empathy and your, I don't know. Through observation, 100% through observation. Beep, boop, beep. I have deduced the universal element of the human experience. Engage empathy on the humans in my closest proximity. <laughs> we all get there in different ways, I suppose. But I do want to circle back on one thing that he said. I think other people who I know who think of themselves as empathetic or intuitive, they're like, well, it's just something that I am. It's just something that is part of their nature. I don't know about that. Empathy is a fantastic idea and an enlightening practice. I totally recommend it. <laughs> and I suppose it is part of our nature. But the other part of our nature is that unconscious bias. The part that favors ourselves and whatever best serves our own experiences. It's really easy to unconsciously lead with that part. I mean, look at kids. I don't have any of my own yet, but it seems like empathy is the part that needs to be taught most of the time. Repeated and broken down and practiced. Ben's approach might feel robotic to him, but in my experience as his friend, it's worked out really well. In fact, during the time that Ben and I really became friends, I was very recently divorced. I was living in his house, and he hardly knew me. <laughs> I had previously been closer with his wife, Colleen. But he would sit on the couch and listen to me vent and ask questions. We would go on runs together, and believe me, I was a mess. But this self-proclaimed robot scientist didn't judge me. And I was so judgeable. He accepted me. He empathized. So I guess this is all just to say that I believe empathy is taught and learned. And in my experience, it's important to remember that because it's quite possible that your unconscious bias has gotten away from you and you can't even see it, you filthy delusional earth monster. You could probably use a reminder on how to be empathetic. I have several friends, even from grad school, so through my 20s into my early 30s, who will tell you when I met them, they liked me, but I was still pretty juvenile in the way that I experienced our friendship. And as we've moved now forward 10 years, they still think of me as the guy who at 26 would be like, oh yeah, tell me your secret. That sounds like, what a great secret. And immediately tell everybody. <laughs> I was the worst at that. And now I'm 10 years older and I would 100% be like, tell me your secret. I will forget it by tomorrow. Like it's your secret. Okay, well you don't need to forget it either, robot scientist. Secrets are meant to be kept. Beep boop beep. Update has been completed. Your secrets are safe with me. Thanks, Ben. And that was something I definitely learned through trial and error. I was, I mean, I'm the guy who's historically through my 20s and late 20s had his foot in his mouth all the time because I was trying <laughs> to convey things that I felt about people. Like, I was always thinking things, but never acting 100% the way that my thoughts would line up with it. And it took a long time to figure that out. Actions and 
thoughts and things like that. Actions and thoughts and things like that. <laughs> I was not spectacular at physics, and then I got to college, and I was still really bad at physics. Bad at physics, bad at math. And I had a real crisis of conscience going into basically my sophomore year of college where I was like, oh, I can't do physics. I'm going to flunk out and be awful. Doubt can have tremendous influence over your necessary delusion earth monster, and it will change your story if you're not careful. This is probably a good time to remind you that I'm no expert. I just have a lot of experience with self-doubt. Because words can seem fleeting and light and even empty at times. It's easy to latch on to a negative thought and use it to cut yourself down if you're having a bad day. But it's the repetition that hammers them in and makes them stick. And pretty soon, those words are shaping the path for your behavior. I can't. I won't. I'm bad. I'm not a scientist. I'm bad at physics. And everyone's staring at my twitch. In college, it was something that was embarrassing, and so it was something that I would hide by putting my hands on my chest. So that no one would see his fingers flutter and pop when he had a fit. I have roommates who are like, oh, I knew this, but I never brought it up. But lucky for Ben, even as he learned to suppress his twitch, his fantasies remained strong, and he didn't let the doubt overtake his dream to become a scientist, despite his inability to excel in physics and math. He rewrote his fear with curiosity. I had a moment, and it was really this transitory where I was like, okay, well, in high school, I was good at biology, so I should see if I can do like a biology major. And you know what I really like is the ocean. I should like see if there's like a marine biology program at my university, and there was. And I was like, well, that's fun. Well, I'll just, I'll just take a bunch of classes. That's my new major. I'm gonna take a bunch of classes in marine biology. It'll be great. And I signed up for like way too many of them for if it had not worked out. And that's ended up what I did for my career. Ben's in his mid thirties now, and he is in fact a scientist. The title is lead bioinformatician. So it's biology and information, and then they muddle it together. I am a scientist. I study microbiology. Specifically, I study microbiology in the ocean. I'm really interested in organisms that are undiscovered. So new microbiology. He got his PhD. He's Dr. Ben. <laughs> I mean, no one calls him that. In fact, he is strangely low-key about it. I had known him for almost two years before I realized he was actually a doctor. As part of my ego, I say it to myself all the time. Come on, Dr. Tully, what do you, don't do this. Do something else, right? Like I said, in my brain, it's, 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 that's how I address myself a lot of times. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody else does. So somebody's got to do it. <laughs> He's a marine biologist, essentially living out a version of his 11-year-old self's necessary delusion. That's what I'm saying. That's happened in fifth grade. He's worked at the University of Southern California for the better part of a decade doing research on the bacteria at the bottom of the ocean or something like that? I look at the DNA of bacteria and then I can tell you what they do. And it's like, okay, well, why do I care about that? It's like, that's a great question. I don't know if I have a 10 second version of why you do. <laughs> His dream has been to remain in academia. He has spent years in the lab, going on conferences around the world and even research boats in the middle of the ocean. I've been to the bottom of the ocean in a man submersible. I have had samples sent to me from salt lakes in Australia. Fun fact, he was also a contestant on TBS's King of the Nerds. 
But now, after years of working under the umbrella of the university, he is stepping out into the private sector for the very first time. He's about to start a job at a company that provides genetic information about gut health. It's actually pretty on theme. Ben's allergic to corn, and he might have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. I'm not sure if that's technically what he has, but it's very IBS vibes if you've ever had dinner with Ben. So, on the brink of this career transition, what does being a scientist mean to him now? Now it feels like science is applying all the things I've learned into reality. Right. As opposed to trying to learn something new. It's like, I have a bunch of knowledge. I should be able to use it to do something to help anybody, persons, people, projects. But where is his passion at? What gets him excited? What kind of things is he twitching about these days? It happens for me a lot when I think about how responsible Colleen and I are with our savings currently and how like compound interest is working in our favor as we like have these savings accounts. Oh man, we're getting a really good return on our investment this year. And if we get a return on an investment like this and we put this much into savings over the next three years, in five years, we could take something out and use it to buy something. It's like, why does adulthood have to ruin everything so much? <laughs> as we grow up, a lot of the fantasy is taken over by sobering reality. And then when the reality gets too overwhelming to digest, we cover it up with a new fantasy. And over and over and over, the delusion is necessary to our survival. So if my middle school delusion was that I was going to be a Power Ranger, and my high school delusion was that I could be Spider-Man, my current delusion is that I'm just going to be like a successful human being. <laughs> and so the thing that gets me going a lot when I have a moment where it breaks out in, in current life, I'm thinking about like, I'm going to get this paper published, and it's going to be spectacular, and everybody's going to be like, this is a great paper, and I'm going to get the job that I want. <laughs> Matt's been interviewing me for the podcast this whole time. No. Can you get inside, please? <laughs> we learned something new about Ben today. What was it? About my Twitch. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know no, they knew about it. He was, he was oh. podcasting me. Colleen came back from pet sitting with our friend Madison, and Ben made us all jammy mince pies for dessert. A cozy, impromptu Christmas stranded in Los Angeles during COVID with the found family. A big thanks to Ben for his story today and for all of his support about this podcast and just as an empathetic guy that I know that I can turn to. I also want to thank my wife, Pow, for entertaining the conversation during our Christmas celebration. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have love for the show and you want to support us, you can write us a review on Apple iTunes. That's the Purple Podcast app. Or send us 143 on Venmo at Your Necessary Delusion. I'm always looking for new stories, so if you have a necessary delusion of your own and you want to share it, you can set up a time to record with me over video chat by emailing us at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com or leave us a message at our voicemail, 323-540-4540. We will be back next week with more epic everyday stories of success and redemption. Until next time. It's like really is like kind of like dopamine hits kind of things. It's never happened related to sex, thinking about sex, even fantasies about other people sexually. I don't know. Today it's still a little bit about being Iron Man. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but... Who keeps you so humble? <laughs>
everybody keeps me humble. I, I think one of the best things about my group of friends is, is that the scientists, they don't care I'm a scientist because they're also scientists. And then my non-scientist friends don't give a shit that I'm a scientist. <laughs> I, I take it very much at this point in time as I just happen to be a specialist in a, a certain thing. Anybody could have been a specialist in this certain thing if they'd wanted to be. It, I just happened to be doing it. Ta-ta-delusion.